with all this talk of Sanhedrin and Sadducees and and all of that, I want you just to imagine for a moment. Put your, your mind's eye to work a little bit. And maybe you need to close your eyes to be able to do this. But between the Old Testament and the New Testament, before Jesus was born, the Jewish people were subjected to invasion and foreign rule. They were subjected to all kinds of indignity. The temple that they cherished so deeply was used for for other religious cults and, and religious activities. There was prostitution in the temple. It was a place of of defilement for the Jews. The Jews were horrified and beaten and battered by what went on in those days before Jesus was born. They were horrendous days where they thought that they were losing all that God had promised them. And there were uprisings, there were people who tried to stand against the the foreign occupiers. They were horrendous days. And so if we fast forward to these days where, where, where Luke is talking about the, the days just directly after Jesus had ascended into heaven, the Jews had begun to establish some manner of autonomy over their lives and over the temple. They were able to worship once again at the temple. They were able to conduct their law and their their life according to God's teaching in the temple. It was limited under Roman rule, but they were able to do that. But you can see that with that context, that background, there was an open door to very strong, very influential individuals who might want to really control what was going on in Jewish life and practice. And the Sadducees were a group of people, they were kind of aristocratic, very wealthy, very influential in the priestly line of the Jews who were extremely powerful and extremely influential in the way that the temple was organised and run. They really wanted to hold to the status quo of the Torah, the first five books of our Old Testament. They didn't want to move on from that. They didn't want the interpretation of the rabbis that they felt maybe had, had led to a deterioration. They wanted a status quo. They rejected any notion of talk of the resurrection from the dead. They were very, very closed. And you can understand why when the temple had been so abused. It's no surprise that when Jesus came along, 
let alone Peter and John and his friends, when they came along, that that would raise alarm bells for them. The Sadducees wanted order. They wanted order even at the expense of God being at work because they wanted to make sure that things were as they should be in their eyes. And so it's not surprising, perhaps, then, when we get to this beginning of chapter 4, where Peter has been preaching the name of Jesus, the authority and the power of Jesus, who had healed this 40-year-old man, who had never walked, and now he was walking. Seems like he was kind of bewildered with his newfound mobility. But it's not surprising that that the Sadducees enlist the temple guard. They enlist the captain of the temple guard and the priests to publicly go and seize Peter and John as they're speaking. Imagine somebody coming in as I'm talking now and just taking me away as I'm trying to talk to you. That's what happened. Peter and John were taken away by the authorities in the temple. Because the authorities were threatened by what they saw going on. See, they thought that they dealt with Jesus. They thought that that had been sorted out. That whole business had been sorted out. But here were Peter and John and the apostles continuing Jesus' work. And as we see in verse 4, Jesus' followers, the number was growing rapidly. Verse 4, up to about 5,000. That's pretty rapid growth over a course of maybe a month. Now let's think about Peter and John for a moment. So maybe we can understand a little bit where the Sadducees are coming from and the temple authorities. They are coming from a place where they feel threatened. Peter and John, however, have spent the last few years with Jesus. The last few days with Jesus were just unbelievable. The last hours with Jesus as he ascended bodily into heaven, they were told to carry on the work. And here, verse 7, They're brought into the temple to be questioned by the assembled ranks of the Jewish authorities. I don't know how many, 60, 80? Imagine sitting in front of the House of Lords in all their finery and being questioned by them. Just think about that situation where they were being questioned in verse 7. When was the last time? That particular scenario was being played out. Jesus' crucifixion. Do you not think that Peter and John would have been thinking, Hello, what is about to happen to me? 60 days ago, 40 days ago, Jesus was beaten by these people. He was given no justice. He was hung to a cross. We're about to meet the same end. 
The stakes were high on both sides as we enter this chapter. One thing is absolutely sure. These early followers of Jesus were facing opposition. This was not an easy ride for them. There was real suspicion. Fear even of what Peter and John and the rest were up to. There was a real sense, this has got to be stopped. We have got to keep the peace. Hold that thought for a minute. And let's jump forward to today. After World War II, arguably the greatest threat to peace, having just been through two world wars in the 20th century. After World War II, the biggest threat to peace, certainly in the West, but actually across the world, surely was political ideologies. Surely it was about communism versus capitalism. The onset of the Cold War. I certainly grew up thinking, well, when is there going to be a nuclear war? When are the Americans or the Russians going to press the button and obliterate us all? That was the biggest threat to world peace until the early 90s. Perestroika, Berlin Wall coming down, and just a a settling of all of that. Didn't all resolve itself, didn't all settle itself easily, But things seem to kind of calm and cool. And in its place, I would argue that today, perhaps the greatest threat to peace in our world is conflicting religious beliefs. So it might seem strange to you, me, a Christian minister, saying, actually, religion can cause such incredible division. But I'd be a fool not to recognise it as you watch the news, as you read the paper, as you look on the internet. Religious belief. Strongly held religious views can so easily lead to us human beings begin to feel superior. That we're right, they're wrong. You see, if my religious practice is right and yours is wrong, well then perhaps I am better than you. Perhaps I should separate myself from you. Or worse still, seek to dominate you. Our human nature can so easily lead us to become suspicious of other people. We can even dehumanise them. Feel like anything bad that happens to them, well, they can't have had it coming. And forget that they're actually human beings. You see it in the Israel-Palestine conflict. You see it in Syria, in Egypt. You see it in Muslim extremists. That young soldier whose funeral was held this week. 
can see it still rumbling on, even in Northern Ireland. Even last night as the riots took place in Northern Ireland again. We can see people becoming so persuaded of their perspective that they forget about the other. For many people today, the response to the division and damage that comes from from seeming religious devotion, well, I guess there are one of two things that many people think, well, this will sort it out. Now, one of those things is to seek to weaken religious influence, to suggest, maybe intellectually, that we no longer have a need for religious belief. And there's an enormous rise in secularism, isn't there? Enormous pressure to secularise our society and, and keep religion out of the public view. And yet, religious adherence across the religions is growing, just in Christian terms only, in the last hundred years. Christians in Africa, the number has grown from around about 9% to 50% of African people would profess themselves to be Christian. In Korea, in that same hundred years, the number has gone from about 1% of Koreans to 40% of Koreans have come to follow Jesus. I suspect that the church in China, we don't really know exactly what's going on, but, but as China grows exponentially, so I believe Christianity will grow too. And so actually for us to say, well, yeah, people don't need a religious belief, it's nonsense. To impose a secularisation on society is actually just as much of a divisive thing as to actually acknowledge religious belief. Another way people have tried to say, well, we'll control it by by relativising it. By saying, well, okay, you're welcome to believe whatever you want to believe, but don't impose it on anybody else. Don't let your views come into the way you live your life. And certainly don't allow them to come into the political sphere. Believe what you like, but keep it to yourself. What's true for you is fine, but don't let that be imposed on anybody else. That's the context that we live in as Christians today. Jump back to the passage again for a minute. I want to kind of just jump between us and the passage a little bit this morning as we just go through. The stakes are high, as we said. And Peter, verse 8, filled with the Holy Spirit, begins to speak. And he explains by verse 10, Know this, you and all the people of Israel, It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, at whom God raised from the dead. This man stands before you healed. Peter declares again the name of Jesus. Not as some kind of magic word, 
but the name that's actually a dynamic and living and personal symbol of Jesus' continuing presence and power on earth. It's a name that carries authority from heaven. And Peter is saying that name is the name by which this man was healed. Jesus, Son of God. And he continues, Peter, verse 12, with a really bold but key statement. Look at verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Kind of a restatement of what Jesus said in John 14. I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Do you imagine saying that to the assembled group of the religious authorities? You guys, no one comes to the Father except by Jesus. Jesus is the only way. As Peter spoke those words, you see that that the authorities actually didn't know what to do. They didn't know what to do. Because they could see before them a man who had never walked in his life be healed in the power of the name of Jesus. Jesus. They were aware, probably not of the exact number, but that thousands of people were beginning to follow the name of Jesus. They were aware that God was being praised. And they didn't know what to do. So having had them in prison overnight, they say to them, right you lot, do not speak in the name of Jesus. Do not teach in the name of Jesus. Get out of here. Hoping, against hope, that maybe that would deal with it. Now, I don't know how I'd respond to that. Okay, thank you very much. Not Peter and John. Uh Uh-uh. Look at verse 19. Peter and John reply, judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. That's incredibly brave. But absolutely right. They can't do what they're being told to do. So what about us? Christians in the 21st century. What are we to make of these claims to an absolute and exclusive truth about God? One way to the one true God. In a world where such a claim is met with, at best, suspicion. If not ridicule. Or downright persecution. 
if we affirm that exclusive claim, are we not going to be the source of increased division and conflict? Well, it has to be said, if we leave this to our humanity, if we leave this to our own love for power and influence and authority, then yes, maybe we will just be another source of conflict. See, so often we use God, don't we, to, uh, to establish our own position. I don't know if any of you have been watching the White Queen on Sunday evenings, that kind of War of the Roses thing. There was a really striking moment last week where three women, each of their husbands at battle in the War of the Roses, from opposing positions, were all captured praying God, would you please make my husband victorious? God, would you please make my husband victorious? God, would you please make my husband victorious? Because they all had something to lose. Sorry. That's just a little kind of 30 seconds. It's excellent. And it's really striking. You'll like that bit. But actually, they've all got something to lose. They all want power. They all want influence. Their prayer is nothing about your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's all about, actually, I want a bit of the throne. Actually, I want a bit of the influence. And if we use our Christian faith to grasp for power, then of course we will be a source of conflict. Let's just think for a moment, and this might be counterintuitive, because often we're we're encouraged, well, let's see if we can find similarities with other faiths, so we can build bridges, and, and actually we do need to learn tolerance. We need to know how to love other people, whatever their perspective and religious view. We need to accept, frankly, that we do live in a pluralist society. That's the way it is. We need to eat it up with our greens. But we do need to see that there are differences to our Christian faith, distinctives, which actually can help us to be agents of reconciliation and of peace. Because they are gospel things. Let's just look at three things to do with Jesus' salvation that are different from other faiths. Let's look at the origin of Jesus' salvation, the purpose of Jesus' salvation, and the method of Jesus' salvation. Each of those things is different from other religious beliefs. Makes them distinctive about Christianity. And if we get our heads around them, can help us So the origin of Jesus' salvation, well, it's kind of obvious, really. Jesus came from God. Jesus came from God. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, Jesus. You see, unlike any other religious belief, our founder, if you like, is God. He's not of human origin. 
but he's come from heaven and he became a human being, Emmanuel, as that lovely Chinese uh, banner tells us. God with us. He became a human who loved those who hated him, who forgave those who crucified him, who showed what being made in the image of God was really about. So first distinctive is Jesus is God, made flesh, come to us. That's the origin of our salvation. Second thing is the purpose of Jesus' salvation. You see, in other religions, there's there's a, a focus on saying, well, how is it that we're going to get away from this earthly existence which is so broken? Many Eastern religions will point us to kind of trying to find another plane that will enable us to escape from this earthly mire. Other religions, it will be a focus on, well, if you do this and do this, then at least in heaven you'll have a place. But actually the purpose of Jesus' salvation starts with redeeming the earth starts with actually coming in the flesh and transforming the brokenness of this world. To redeem our world, to seek justice, to seek mercy, to reach out to parts of the world that have nothing. So the purpose of salvation isn't just about eternity, but it's about now and eternity. And not to manipulate now so that we get an eternity, but to live now because that's what God wanted us to do. The third and perhaps most crucial difference, if you like, is the method of Jesus' salvation. As I've already kind of alluded, other religions say, well, you have to do this and this and this. And then you have to do this. And if you do this then maybe, just maybe, God will look favourably upon you in the next life. You have to follow these pillars. We have to achieve these things. And then, just maybe, God will look favourably on you. That's not how Jesus came. 1 John 4 said, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son as an atoning sacrifice. Christianity starts not with us doing something to earn favour with God, but God doing something to save us. Jesus lived the life that he lived for us. He died the death that he died for us while we were still sinners, while we were still ratbags. I speak for myself. While we were still unworthy, God came into the world for us. We can do nothing to earn God's favour. But we need to acknowledge that as we come before God, we come because we need him. Not because we're worthy. Not because we can do anything 
but because we need him and because he came for us and we need his acceptance and his forgiveness. As we do that, actually we put aside all arrogance. We put aside any kind of sense that we're somehow better than other people because actually what we're saying is, God, there is nothing of me that is good enough for you. Help me. It's almost by implication saying that actually probably there are other people that are far nicer than me. There are other people that are probably far better human beings than me. But I see my need for you. Help me. Forgive me. Of course, as we've already said, there's so much evidence that Christianity has been misused. People behaving badly from the Crusades right up to the the conflict in Northern Ireland. But actually, if we allow the incredible reality of the grace of God to dwell within us, then those things will not be things that draw conflict and make us somehow want to bring conflict. Yes, they will draw opposition. Because the world will oppose Jesus. But not because of any kind of brazenness or any selfish motive, but actually because Jesus threatens the status quo of power, of influence, of wealth as being the the keys to personal fulfilment and peaceful living. Jesus turns those things on on its head. Just look for a minute at the way Peter and John handled themselves. In verse 3, as they were speaking... They were seized, but they didn't put up any fight. They allowed the temple guard to take them. Then the next day, Peter, not full of anger or full of defensiveness, but full of the Holy Spirit, asks God to help him speak, for God to shine out and for Peter not really to be a part of that. Let us not seek to exert power or influence over people. Let us try and live out the grace of God in our lives. Let people oppose us because what they see is different, yes, but in a good way, not in an obnoxious way. Let what they see point towards Jesus, towards grace and mercy being operative in our lives, towards the power of Jesus being transformative in our lives. Some people will find that objectionable, but let it be the power of Jesus that they find objectionable and not us that they find objectionable. I wonder this morning, how do you view those who don't share your belief in Jesus? Are you tempted to look down your nose at them? 
Maybe you're fearful of them. Maybe you're threatened by them. I invite you to think again on the power of the name of Jesus. We don't need to be fearful of others who don't believe what we believe. We don't need to be threatened, but we need to love those who don't believe in Jesus. That might not be easy. That might not be straightforward. It certainly wasn't for Peter and John. Why don't you ask God today to help us to be struck afresh by his grace, to be struck afresh by the amazing thing that Jesus did in coming to earth. God made flesh, came for us while we were still sinners. Ask God that you might have a renewed confidence in the power and authority of Jesus' name. You may come up against opposition. But let people oppose the name of Jesus and not your conduct.